What does it actually mean to be a bad bitch? I'm your host, Valerie Martin, and if you're asking me, it means being fully alive, unstoppable, kicking ass at the things that light you up, and being permanently unavailable for the things that make you feel like shit. Whether you're a boss bitch business owner or just someone who goes hard on your personal and professional growth, buckle the fuck up and get ready to be inspired, challenged, and take action. Let's do this, boo. Hello and welcome back to Bad Bitch Therapist Podcast. I am not going to lie, I am just ever so slightly delirious as I'm recording this, which should be fun for you, I hope. Fun for me too. (laughs) Just very giggly. I did not sleep great last night. I broke one of my own cardinal rules and stayed up late on the computer. You know, sometimes that hyper-focus comes along and we just got to ride that momentum all the way. I was shopping for furniture and decor for a new office that we are adding on to the Gaia Center. So we will now have six private offices, which is very exciting. And I even have my friend Jasmine Cage, former podcast guest, coming in from Memphis to do an art mural on the wall. Super excited for that. An art mural. Is that redundant? Yeah. See, there it is. Loopy. (laughs) All right. Let's get into what I'm watching, reading, and loving. Recently, I have been watching Andor. I have a few episodes left. If you are a Star Wars nerd, you already know what Andor is. I am like just, I wouldn't even call myself adjacent. I enjoy them. I had probably not even seen the original 1970s movies until I was a young adult. And then since I've been with my husband for the past like 11 years, we just, anytime there's new content, a new movie or something, we go see it. And I always enjoy it, but I only retain a plot for like two years. So then I have to get the summary on like, where are we in the universe again? When are we? Anyway, so I've watched some of the series. Like I watched the first season of Mandalorian. It was fine. I was there for the child, let's be real. But Andor has been good, and my husband insists that it's like one of his favorite shows, that it's just so well done. And I I agree. I'm really enjoying it. I do think it's very well written. The characters, just the way that they evolve the story through the season. So I have my last few episodes of it. Pretty dark, and I don't always do great with dark, but, you know. I can appreciate quality television. (laughs) I am reading Multi-Amory, which is also the focus of this episode. So you will hear all about the book momentarily because I got to chat with the three authors that I'll tell you about in a moment. And I am loving this book so far. I wish that I had been able to get all the way through it before the interview, But I already knew there was going to be way more than enough to talk about in a short podcast episode. So wasn't too worried about trying to cram and finish the book. And now I just get to leisurely finish the book. And I'm not kidding. Like I mentioned this in the podcast, but I fully expect that it's going to be one that not only I, but all of us here at the Gaia Center refer to our clients, whether they are individual clients, seeing us in a couple, seeing us in a non-traditional relationship structure. I just 
really, really like it that much. So um, excited for you to hear the interview with them. And then recently I'm loving these little things called cakes. They are silicone little, what do you even call that? Inserts, I guess, for your boobs. <laughs> and if you are like me and like to wear sports bras a lot and are tired of the little pads just getting lost and moving around and it is endlessly frustrating. This ad was served to me and I was like, well, y'all have been listening well because I want this product. As always, this is not an ad. I'm not that fancy yet, maybe someday. But I just am wearing them today for the first time and it's great because I'm like, oh, I don't have to worry about nipping through and yet they just adhese with your own body heat and just super comfy like don't feel it at all I am jazzed you can wear them in your swimsuit you can wear them working out and sweating like they're designed for that so I'm like oh my gosh I don't know if I guess I can just wash them every day because I'm gonna be wearing these things all the time (laughs) that's cakesbody.com All right, let me tell you more about our guests. Jace Lindgren, Emily Sotella-Matlack, and Dedeker Winston created the Multi-Amory podcast in 2014 to raise awareness, provide approachable resources, and combat the stigma faced by people in non-traditional relationships. Today, with hundreds of episodes, millions of downloads around the world, and a rapidly growing community, they are dedicated to offering practical advice and communication tools grounded in the latest relationship research, guest experts, and years of professional experience, which they also now do through their book, Multi-Amory, Essential Tools for Modern Relationships. And as you'll hear about in the conversation, it is not just a book only about like polyamorous or non-traditional relationship structures. It applies for friendship family, monogamous relationships, all of it, which is amazing. Multi-Amory has been featured in top-tier media, done a national podcast tour, and presented at numerous conferences. You can search and subscribe to Multi-Amory wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find them online at multiamory.com. That's M-U-L-T-I-A-M-O-R-Y. That will be in the show notes. Multiamory.com. Multi-Amory at Facebook and Twitter, or on Facebook and Twitter, and at Multi-Amory underscore podcast on Instagram and Thread. You can also find the host's individual bios and links at the Multiamory website. And let me just strongly recommend the website has a great little start here section that gives you some of the best things to read and podcast episodes. So highly recommend checking it out. And the book has homework and takeaways and cheat sheets. Like it is so good, you guys. I am so excited for y'all to hear this conversation with Jace, Emily, and Dedeker. All right. I'm here with Jace and Emily and Dedeker. And as I just mentioned before pushing record, I'm like a little nervous, a little starstruck. You guys are veteran podcasters and authors and just, yeah, I'm I'm a little nervous, but it's going to be fine. We're going to get through it. No, it's going to be great. Yeah. It's from one post- podcaster to another. We see each other and uh, we're yeah, in solidarity. We're gonna, yeah, yes. in solidarity. When y'all started the podcast, it was what like eight years ago. Is that right? Almost ten years ago. Almost yeah. ten. Oh my god. Yes. I. I mean, I imagine that you didn't. I, who can envision like where might this go? And we didn't know what was going to happen with podcasting ten years ago. But I'm just kind of curious, like when it was almost ten years ago, and y'all were sitting down, going, "We should maybe start this thing." Like, tell me a little bit about that origin story. It was Jace's fault. 
Yeah, absolutely. Jace, why don't you go? <laughs> Uh, sure. Yeah, I was I was a pretty early adopter of listening to podcasts in general. You know, I probably I think two thousand nine or ten is when I first discovered podcasts and was like, "This is great! I love this! I love audio in general!" And it was just so convenient and portable and all that. And so then, fast forward to two thousand fourteen, when the three of us we were all polyamorous at the time, and there weren't a lot of resources about polyamory to kind of normalize that or to talk about that. And at the time, there was only one other podcast talking about it, and that was Polyamory Weekly. And they they have since, I believe they're not publishing episodes anymore, but they did it for a very long time. So props mm-hmm. to them for, for how long they did that show. But you know, they were also from an older generation than us. They were more like the Gen X, maybe even boomer kind of age group, whereas we're more in the millennial age group. And this was before we even called ourselves millennials, I guess. But uh, we just said, hey, let's start a podcast about this to make it more normal for people. And part of that was using our own names, not using pseudonyms, not making it like this dark secret sex culty kind of thing and just saying, hey, this is another way to do relationships in the same way that people shouldn't have to hide if they're gay or trans or anything like that. And so that was the purpose. And it's grown a ton since then, that now we cover all sorts of types of relationships. Emily, for the last five years or so, has been in a monogamous relationship. And so we've really expanded and broadened what we talk about, but still trying to center relationships that are often left out by mainstream dating advice. And to jump onto that, yeah, as you were saying, no, we didn't know where this was going to go. There was no part of us that thought, oh, eventually we're going to have to figure out how to actually run a business together (laughs) and then add that to our relationship. But it's all been fantastic. I mean, lucky us that it's worked out the way it has. Yeah, thank goodness. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. And like, obviously, podcasting has taken off in a big way since then. But even just I'm so curious y'all's perspective on this, because it's like sometimes impossible to piece apart like how much of me thinking this is a bigger thing now is just my personal you know expanding of my consciousness and awareness in the world especially becoming a sex therapist in the past couple of years and how much of it is like no just generally speaking this is blowing up right now like non-traditional relationship structures what is y'all's take on that This is top of mind for me because I was literally talking to a journalist about this this Mm -hmm. morning. Yeah, you're not the only one to feel like, oh my gosh, this is blown up. Of course, non-monogamy in some form or fashion has existed for hundreds and hundreds of years. and If if not thousands. Yeah, if not thousands Mm -hmm. in many cultures across the globe. And even within the US, it's, you know, has a history of its own. But as far as what we'll call the modern day consensual non-monogamy movement, for me, I feel like I I noticed a shift somewhere around 2015, 2016, which was just a couple of years after we started mm-hmm. the podcast. And I think a couple of things were happening around that time, you know, so 2015 in the US was when uh, same-sex marriage was legalized, mm-hmm. right? And literally in that argument, you know, there were arguments about, well, if this gets legalized, you know, could this be grounds for legalizing other types of marriage, like marriage with multiple partners and stuff like that. So I think that helped to plant some seeds in the public consciousness. And then 2016 was the Trump election when a lot of stuff fell apart, right? And that's when I started first noticing 
even after having been polyamorous for several years at that point, starting to notice, oh, wow, like there's more people listing non-monogamy in their Instagram bios, or I have friends who are coming out on social media in a way that I'd never really experienced before. So I do think that was one turning point. And then I also think that 2020 was another turning point with the pandemic, at least another one that people notice, right? That, I don't know, I think this particular period of years, there's been a lot of upheaval and questioning of structures is maybe the big theme and questioning relationship structures falls into that as well. Something that's so cool additionally is the fact that we have these mediums now to begin to educate ourselves much more than we ever have before, meaning we can look up stuff on TikTok and Instagram and find blogs or a ton of other podcasts besides ours on this subject. We got to kind of come in on the ground floor because we started in 2014 and then all of this sort of happened around us at the same time, which is fantastic. But I love the fact that it's so much more visible now in a way that it never was even when we started. Now people can be out in a way that perhaps they weren't before. I think there there are absolutely still issues and in, in, you know, potential for people losing their jobs or losing custody of their kids or things along those lines in certain states, especially if you come out. But I do think that in other states, it's become much more normalized than it once was. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I really was surprised and I wasn't expecting when I first opened the book as like brand new to multi-amory, I was just kind of expecting like a a polyamory book. And yes, it's somewhat that, but also, I mean, you're very clear, like this is not a primer if you want that, like go get Dedeker's other book, but it's the inclusion of like all types of relationships, including monogamy, I think was just like kind of surprising to me. And I was like, oh my gosh. And part of why I selfishly love that is because I I do think that this is going to become like one of our go-to books that we as a team like are able to Aww. recommend to all Yay. of our clients, like Aww. regardless of their current chosen relationship structure. So I just think that's like very uncommon. And I definitely get that maybe it didn't start that way and it evolved as y'all evolved. And as you also maybe just realized how much of the sort of, best practices, the skills, the things that work well, work across these different structures. So I wanted to ask about just generally relationship skills that maybe come more from the ethical non-monogamy side or polyamory side that are really applicable that everyone can learn from. Anything's just top of mind for you with that? Well, first of all, I just want to say that's a really great compliment. I mean, literally what you said about being able to refer it to many different people, regardless of their relationship format. That was exactly what we were going for. That's the whole goal. That's yeah. the whole goal. So if you want to write that into an Amazon review or something, oh, like, sure. that'd be great. yeah, because that was our whole goal, right? Was to, to make sure that this resource was accessible, as accessible as we could possibly make it. Yeah. And so like the specific tools that come more from the consensual non-monogamy side, uh, I guess to set up just a big umbrella is talking talking more than you think that you should. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, really, that's that's the whole heart of it. And what comes to mind for me, at least to talk about the tools that are specifically in our book, it reminds me of our radar tool, you know, our relationship check-in formula that we developed. Obviously, a relationship check-in is something anybody can do. It's not something that's special to being non-monogamous. But I think what we found being in this community and working within this community so much is that non-monogamous people 
tend to have or develop more of a comfort with over communicating, mm-hmm. right? You know, so communicating what it is that you're looking for, what it is you want out of a particular relationship, communicating what sort of safer sex practices you are incorporating in all of your sexual relationships, right? You know, being really open and transparent about the things that you want or the feelings that are coming up for you or being really open and transparent about the insecurities and jealousies that you're feeling. And again, it's not like people who come to non-monogamy inherently have these skills already. A lot of people, it's developing these skills because our culture doesn't necessarily set us up for that, right? So the whole point with the relationship check-in was that, you know, instead of just letting there be this problem backlog that builds up because we don't talk about things, or instead of letting there be the situation where, oh, we just don't talk about things because we feel like they're good. And so the only time we talk about it is when suddenly there's a problem, right? And then we have to be very reactionary about what's going on in our relationship. It's really meant to be a very proactive tool for you and your partner to go through on a monthly basis or a quarterly basis. Or we know some people who do this on a weekly basis to make sure that things are feeling good, that we can talk about you know, if we live in a shared space. Are we still happy with how the household is being run? Are we still happy with our sex life? Do we have any particular future plans on the calendar? And specifically for monogamous folks, having a check or non-monogamous folks, having a check-in is really helpful for being able to talk about what's going on in other relationships because we don't get a lot of scripts for how to talk to your partner about this person you just got a crush on and you're thinking about asking them out on a date, right? And so it was really about creating this repetitive, safe container that happens regularly so that it can maximize the amount of time in your relationship that you're able to be present and enjoying each other's company and minimizes those sort of reactionary sort of knee-jerk fights that happen because we didn't talk about this up until this point. Jason, Emily, is there anything that I missed there? I'm sure, of course, we wrote an entire chapter about this, so there's much more that we could cover, but I was just wondering if there's any fundamentals that slipped my mind. I think all of that on radar was great. I think our repair shop format also really is something that just the fact that you have to sit down with a partner after a fight in that format and kind of discuss what your stories about what just happened are, maybe your history about, you know, I'm being triggered because of this thing actually that happened in my past and you reminded me of that in the moment and so I got really activated because of that taking ownership for your part in that fight. And then ultimately the P in shop is prevention. And so trying to figure out how it is that the two of you are going to maybe prevent something like that from happening in the future. I think the difference there is just the intentionality behind, you know, going through steps like that, having conversations that really get down and dirty as to why something's happening. We're, we're again, like Dedeker said, not really taught to do that in a monogamous setting. It is often so reactionary. And so I guess it it's sometimes like, it like, like fighting is like almost glorified in some monogamous mm. culture. I feel like it's, it's sexy, it's fiery. It's, oh, if we're not fighting, then like the passion of the relationship is not there. And so people don't really love the fact that sometimes we talk about, yeah, let's have a scheduled time to discuss the relationship instead of it just happening spontaneously. But actually it, it can facilitate much happier times because you're able to sort of compartmentalize and talk about 
the challenges that you're having in one safe space at at a time. Yeah, love that. It's it's funny. I'm thinking about some of the the comments that I often hear, and I am in a monogamous marriage myself, just for context. But like hearing people say, like when they hear about polyamory, like, oh my god, that sounds exhausting. Like I can barely <laughs> keep up with. And like, fair, right? Everyone is entitled to their preference. But but I think part of you know what's maybe showing up there is is that level of communication that arguably, like I'm sure, like not every polyamorous relationship does this well either. Like not everyone's being as intentional as as there would be served in their relationship. But it's it is almost like more of a necessity when there's these different layers and and webs of relationships. And yet, as y'all have alluded to, like, gosh, wouldn't that be beneficial too? And even if it's just a couple, like, duh. Mm-hmm, definitely. Yeah, the communication piece is is funny because yeah, good communication is important no matter what kind of relationship it is, even non-romantic relationships, right? Even just best friends or family members or whatever, having better communication is going to make that relationship better, especially in the long run and when you go through hard times and things like that. But with monogamy, because it's so ingrained in us and there's so many assumptions that we all come in with about how that's going to go, what it's going to look like, we can get by for a lot longer without thinking about it. I was trying to think of a good analogy for this. It'd be something like for most of us, at least in the US where we drive cars all the time, that I could be thinking about literally anything except driving the car the entire time I'm driving a car right? Because it's so autopilot for me. It's just, yep, yep, I've done that. And you know, my driver's ed instructors from back in the day would probably be concerned about that fact because, yeah, a lot of us are a lot more careless in our cars than we should be. And now compare that to if you were trying to ride a, a unicycle or something that you'd never done before, you're going to be thinking a lot harder about how do I do this, trying to figure it out, how do I do it well? And it's kind of like that. Like you're doing a relationship, but you can't fall back on all the habits that you grew up with and you saw in movies and you read in books and you read in plays. And so it kind of forces you to be a little more intentional about what you're doing, thinking about what you're doing, thinking about your agreements, talking about them. It kind of requires more of that to even get by. And so I think that's what we mean when we talk about non-monogamy that's kind of one of the special things it brings is that comfort because you can't get by without it. And in monogamy, fortunately slash unfortunately, we can get by for a little bit. Ideally, we are communicating well though, right? Right. But yeah, easier to go on cruise control for sure. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And another one of the things I know y'all talk about in the book and on the podcast is that I think is very valuable for all types of relationships is relationship anarchy. Right. Like there have been times where I've like pulled out the smorgasbord mm-hmm. and <laughs> nice. yeah. in relation to not even a romantic relationship or sometimes in relation to a monogamous relationship. Right. Like it's because it's all relevant. Like these are all needs that we have and they don't all need to happen in your one primary relationship. So, you know, however, they do need to get met. And what does that look like? So, I yeah, I think that there's so many skills and tools that can transfer. I love handing out the relationship anarchy smorgasbord to my clients as well. Like I think it's just such a great tool and anyone who's listening like you can literally just google relationship anarchy smorgasbord and find if you can spell it. 
Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. You can figure it out though. <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. there's all kinds of PDFs out there, some with better design than others, but yeah, fantastic tool. Yes, absolutely. I'm interrupting the pod very briefly for a quick message about how to work with me. If you enjoy this podcast, then we would probably be a great fit working together. I would love to support you, whether you are a leader, a business owner, or just someone who wants to crush some of your goals over the next few months. Let's talk. I have several programs and would love to tell you more about them and learn what you are wanting to work toward. You can shoot me a DM, an email, find me online at badbitchtherapist.co. All right, let's get back to the episode. Speaking of skills and tools, which I know y'all are a big fan of, and I love that. I love making things tangible and memorable for people. One of the things that you address, and I was so appreciative of this in the book, and I'm sure all over the podcast too, is noticing how even when we learn these important skills and tools and this language, we want to be mindful that it's those things are not being weaponized by us, by our partners. And it's you know, I'm sure y'all, I don't know if y'all have talked about this publicly on the pod yet, but like the whole thing that blew up around Jonah Hill and the text messages with the girlfriend, right? Like right. weaponizing well, we of boundaries. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. cool. I'll have to go listen to that episode or we'll put it in the show notes. But yeah, just like I know that that's a thing in general that can happen This is that these hel- helpful ideas can get distorted and weaponized. So I just wonder if there's anything you want to share, whether it's specifically about boundaries or anything around where people miss the mark or how what that might look like if it is being weaponized. Yeah, it, boundaries is a chapter in our book, I think, because it's so often people don't even know what the word boundaries really mean. And they conflate it with so many other things that are actually like a preference or a rule mm-hmm. or an agreement or, uh, you know, you have to do this thing. And if you don't, there's going to be consequences. So or ultimatums. And, you know, I think that's a really important distinction to make. Because for us, boundaries are simply something that you impose on yourself, and that you are going to handle and do if you know a boundary is crossed so for example one of the things that i talk about in the book that that i think a story that i said was that if a partner for example is yelling that may be triggering to me or if both of us are raising our voices that may be challenging and so i'm going to exit the situation and leave the room just in so that i can physiologically you know get a little bit more calm and so the two of us have a moment to sort of become, I think, a little bit more regulated than we were. And I that, again, that's not a punishment on the partner. It's being able to say to myself, this is the thing that's going to help me in the moment. This is the thing that's going to keep me safe. So I'm going to exit the room. I am going to tell my partner beforehand, hey, if we get in a situation like this where we're in conflict and voices are starting to get raised, then instead of continuing that cycle, I'm going to exit the conversation until I feel like I can come back to it with, you know, a a leveler head, I guess. And, you know, the thing is that boundaries are just one part of the ecosystem. I think that, you know, what we've seen, and, and I think the Jonah Hill situation is a byproduct of this, is, you know, boundaries have sort of gotten this weird PR of like, this is going to be the thing that saves you. This is going to be the thing that fixes all your problems and makes all of your relationships great. And 
that can be true, but it's just one piece of the puzzle, right? You know, it's like also acceptable to make a request of your partner, like, hey, could you avoid yelling when we're in conflict, right? But but of course, even when making a request, you still can't control them, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, and so it's different if you make that request and it's not honored, getting all worked up about it versus deciding, okay, I'm going to put in this boundary to keep myself safe and like maintain my own values, right? It's a hard and tragic thing because any tool can be weaponized at the end of the day, just like a hammer can be mm. weaponized. <laughs> That's not what it's meant for, but it can be misused and abused in a certain way. And so, you know, I do think that there is something important, you know, some self inquiry around. So, for instance, if someone reads our book or they listen to our podcast and they're really excited by a particular tool, like, oh, I really want to do a radar or I really want to use the Triforce or I really want to use microscopes with my partner. And if it becomes about, I really need to make my partner do this or I'm going to really rules lawyer my partner around whether or not they're doing this right, which this is all very common human behavior, right? Like, I want to normalize that. Like, this is something that comes up for us in relationships. I think it's important to do a little bit of self-inquiry behind, well, when I'm drawn to this tool, like why, what am I drawn to? What is it that I'm actually wanting from my partner? What am I craving? Right. That goes just beyond, oh, I just want my partner to use this tool. Right. Like there's something that you want that maybe you're not getting. And I think that that can be the key to help to avoid some of that more weaponizing behavior right? Because that can start to maybe pull back the curtain on, you know, urges to control a partner because I feel like they're not doing the things that I want in order to feel safe and validated, right? Like what do you actually want is to feel safe and validated. And it's a lot better to kind of cut to that maybe a little bit faster instead of kind of going this more circuitous route. But of course, you know, you have to be in the place to be ready to do that self-inquiry, right? Yep. Yes. Very well said. You mentioned briefly microscripts. And and again, I know there, there's probably, I think, a whole chapter on that in the book and, and info on the podcast. But can you just give us a little teaser of what you mean when you say microscripts? Yeah. Yeah. Basically, microscripts are, I guess, another term for it in research would be idiosyncratic language is a piece of it. But basically, it's some little thing that you can say, or even just a little action you could do or a little song you could sing or something that has some kind of deeper meaning to it. And you can use it as this quick shorthand to either get yourself out of a bad pattern. So maybe we have a certain interaction that tends to lead to one of us kind of huffing and being grumpy and then the other one being upset. And then later we have a fight about it and we kind of identify, okay, there's a pattern. We tend to go through this same thing so let's come up with a microscript that we can, when we notice that thing happening, we can do this instead to kind of jolt us out of it, you could think of, right? So it could be, I mean, one of the examples we give in the book is if a partner asks you to do a chore or something like, hey, I'm, I'm washing the dishes. Could you take out the trash? None of us really want to take out the trash. That's not really fun. So it's kind of that, ah, okay. Like you really, you wanted to just sit down and relax finally, but you're like, okay, fine, I'll do it. And your partner that asks you feels like, well, geez, I'm doing something. Like I just need your help here. Why are you being such a jerk about it? And you're like, well, okay, I, I didn't mean to. I just, I'm not excited about it, but it's not about you asking me. Like, I'm happy to do it 
for the household, but you know what I mean? It's like, there's a lot to talk about there. And so the example we give in the book is the microscript of just saying ready with like your hands on your hips and kind of like a superhero pose. And it's just kind of this shortcut that communicates. I'm willing to do this. I don't want to, but none of us want to, but I'm going to do it anyway. And this isn't your fault. And I'm not mad at you about it. You're able to communicate all that in one word and then move on with your day. And it also is silly enough that it kind of disrupts those patterns. You don't get into a fight. That's awesome. Yeah. It makes me think too of how like the Gottmans talk about how the couples who fight well are often able to bring humor into it, even in the midst totally. of conflict, which is yes. so cool. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's basically just like in joking your way or using the power of your own in jokes to create custom built tools for yourself and your relationship to help smooth over some of those rough patches or some of those, I guess, default patterns that come up in conflict. Yeah. Very cool. Go off. I want to know what is the most frustrating myth that y'all still mm. encounter pretty regularly about either relationships in general or relationship structures that you could go off on for hours. And you might all have different ones or you might pick one and just all riff on it, whatever feels right. Yeah, I need to sit with that for a second. To yeah, think about which I know. One exactly. Like on, There's a on long the, On the fly. <laughs> so many myths. While y'all are thinking, and you can tune me out a little bit, but like, you know, one of the things that I actually just the interview that will air before this one, I'm I'm talking with my cousin and we did talk a little bit about polyamory or it, I guess she would prefer the ethical non-monogamy terminology because that's the path that she's chosen as well as my brother. So like I'm learning so much just as a family member, but I nice. asked her the kind of like, what would you say when people are like, I just, it just seems like you just can't commit. It just like, that's what it seems like it's happening, right? So that's kind of like a classic one that I think of, but y'all probably get a million of these all the time in your world. So whatever is coming up for you, I'm just curious to hear. You just did an episode called the episode to share with your parents. And it's basically Ooh. for people who just came out to give to their loved ones or their family members. And it's kind of a primer on non-monogamy. It's sort of just like a quick, here's 45 minutes where you can learn a little bit about non-monogamy, what to expect, maybe why you know your loved one is choosing this path. And we do get into some common misconceptions about non-monogamy on there. So I'm trying to cool. find like those specific ones. <laughs> but that one is absolutely on there. Like non-monogamy cool. is just a phase. People are just afraid of commitment. And also, yeah, a big one is that non-monogamy is bad for kids and leads to unstable family structure. There is a, a woman who has done, she's basically the reading, leading researcher on non-monogamous households and their kids and parents. And she did a longitudinal study over many, many years with specific families to kind of see, you know, how they were doing as they were growing up within these households. And she found that like, there's no evidence to suggest that non-monogamous families fare any better or worse than monogamous ones that the kids do. So that's The Polyamorous Next Door by Dr. Elizabeth Sheff. And yeah, the, definitely, I think, 
within non-monogamous households, you get the opportunity to have a bunch of different viewpoints of adults within a child's life. And that's really incredible. Also for the adults, you know, it takes a village to raise a kid. So for the adults, there's the opportunity to, okay, we're going to take a break and you guys get the kid tonight kind of thing. And that's lovely because not everyone is as tired and exhausted all the time. And so I think it can absolutely work. I have family members who have been non-monogamous their entire relationship and have teenage kids now. And those kids are great. And so I've absolutely seen it work firsthand. Cool. I think the misconception that gets to me the most and seems to be the undercurrent of a lot of misconceptions is the assumption that all oh, these aren't real relationships, you know, quote unquote, real relationships mm. for, you know, pick your reason, right? It's, oh, it's all about sex. So it's not a real relationship or you're not committed. So it's not a real relationship or you're not planning on living together with one of these people. It's not a real relationship. You know, literally any reason can be given for why these are not real relationships. So I, I think it would all just kind of point to that right? This, you know, my experience has been <laughs> the amount of time that it maybe takes for me to be considered as like a real partner to somebody by like, let's say their friends and family probably takes like twice as long as it might for a monogamous person and vice versa. You know, like people that I start dating or people who are my partners, it takes probably about twice as long for my family to start to come around to, oh, they are actually a partner. Oh, they are actually going to stick around right? Versus I think in traditional dating and monogamy, if your family and friends notice like, oh, you brought the same person like three times to family dinner. Great. You must be in a relationship, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> We're um, all going to assume you're going to get married and have kids now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think there's there's definitely a higher burden of proof on non-monogamous people that their relationships are real and significant and, and lasting, right? Mm -hmm. I, so I, I think that's probably the biggest one for me. Yeah, it makes me think yeah. about, I'm sorry, I'll, before I forget, uh, things jump out of my head, the Relationship Escalator book that y'all mentioned in the book, I'll put that in the show notes as well. I had not heard of that term and just mm. even some of the, the little quotes that you pull are just like spot on. That's the problem, right? Yeah, gosh, <laughs> this question about kind of what are the most, I guess, like frustrating misconceptions is a funny one because I feel like when we first started doing this, you know, like a little over 10 years ago, there were certain ones that came up a lot. And then I felt like, oh, we've kind of moved past this culturally. I don't get those as often. But then have gotten some of those just recently from some people actually at my work who are like a generation older than me. And I think part of it was that as I've been in this world longer, more of the people around me get it. And I kind of forget about all the people that don't. And so so one of them is that not taking it seriously, that idea of, oh, well, you'll grow out of this eventually. Or for me as a man, that kind of like, oh, I see, you're just doing this thing to avoid commitment. Well, hopefully eventually you kind of grow up and, and decide you can commit to something, right? A lot of those assumptions about why someone might do this or you know how, how everyone in the relationship would feel about it. Uh, but then I would say besides those ones, which honestly took me by surprise because I hadn't, I just hadn't even thought about that as, as a thing people thought anymore, even though a lot of people do, which is 
my fault for not realizing that. <laughs> I would say beside that is here's kind of a weird one on the other side of the people who feel like they're very up on all of this and they get it and they're they're super accepting and understanding of it that they'll jump to this assumption that oh you're polyamorous and you have two or three partners or whatever all of you must live together and all of you must be sleeping with each other and th- that's one of those big misconceptions that a lot of the media really perpetuates too right all the press coverage is going to be about oh this thruple blah, 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 this thruple, blah, blah, blah. Or, oh, look, these five people all got rights to custody of a kid together or whatever. And those are great, but they're the minority by far that most polyamorous people are just in two-person relationships with multiple different two-person relationships that all kind of interlock and intersect. Mm -hmm. And that the group relationship, even a group of three is really quite rare. And so I think that's something that frustrates me quite a bit when people think they're really hip and with it, but they just kind of jump to that assumption that, oh, you know, I, I show up to an event with Dedeker and her other partner and they're like, ah, oh, Jason's sleeping with that person too. I'm like, well, would you assume that about any random friend? I don't know. It's just that that to me is frustrating, that that assumption. Yeah, that's super helpful to hear. I mean, and in general, I think like, it's almost more insidious or kind of sneaky, all of the the ways that we might make assumptions when we think that we're like woke and with it and aware, right? And that goes for so many issues, right? So I think like implicit bias, implicit assumptions, like it's just always watch what we're assuming. What's great is I think as awareness of non-monogamy and polyamory has started to creep into the mainstream, when we do interviews on slightly more mainstream shows where people, again, often with the best of intentions, like trying to be accepting and trying to be welcoming, will see the name of our podcast. And I think what happens is they panic a little bit and they're like, oh God, it's a new term I wasn't aware of. Okay, you're mul- it's multi-amory now. You're multi-amorous. Great. Like... <laughs> And we'll start referring to it as like a multi-amory relationship or something like that. And we always have to be like, no, no, that's just the name of our show. That's, that's, it's okay. It's all right. Don't panic. It's all right. all the time. I know yeah, language yeah. happens. I know language moves really quickly and people are really quick to jump down somebody's throat for using the wrong word, but like, mm. it's okay. <laughs> yes. Amazing. Well, I-, I could keep going on and on forever, but out of respect for your time, I will kind of work toward wrapping up. Is there anything else that any of you just feel like you want to make sure to say in light of where we've been so far? I think it, what you said at the top of the show, just again, you know, that's something to leave your audience and all audiences with is the fact that relationships are just relationships. And we're moving, I think, in this it is sort of on this path of seeing that to be the case and that we don't have to other relationships as much as we once did. You know, here's all these non-monogamous weirdos or these relationship anarchists or whatever it is, swingers over here. But we all just want to be loved and love and be respected for the choices that we make, whatever it is that that makes us happiest in this life. And I think we are moving in that direction of seeing, okay, relationships can be wonderful in a variety of ways and that's okay. And I hope that books like ours, you know, can show people that. I'm just going to get on a a tiny soapbox. 
like a three inch soapbox. <laughs> so tiny. I, I promise it'll be tiny. Just a reminder to folks that, you know, relationship status and relationship format is not a protected class in this country, or at least it isn't yet. And there have unfortunately been precedents of people losing custody of their children or losing their jobs or losing access to housing or or just being having more obstacles to those things in general, right? And so, of course, there are amazing people in this field doing work on that, like trying to secure rights and protection. But basically, you know, if if you're listening and you feel like, well, I'm monogamous, this isn't really relevant to me or whatever. First of all, chances are really high that you do know someone who's consensually non-monogamous. Just with the percentages, basically, there's probably more non-monogamous people than there are vegans in the country. There's, what was it when we were on the podcast the other day? It was like, oh, like there's about as many non-monogamous people as like people who have cats, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like, if you know someone who has a cat, chances are equally as likely you know someone who's consensually non-monogamous. You just don't think that you do, right? So there's that. You're probably much more connected to people who are non-monogamous than you realize. And then also, if you identify as monogamous, but you like had a threesome once five years ago and maybe enjoyed it, but then never went back to it, you kind of still fall technically under the umbrella of non-monogamy, you know? And so when we're thinking about reducing stigma and securing rights and protections, it includes a lot more of us than maybe you might realize. So that's just a call to action, just to like be nice to people and <laughs> educate yourself if you can and, you know, be an ally the best that you can. There, that's my super tiny soapbox. Oh, so appreciated. Thank you. All right. Nothing, nothing from you, Jace. I think you said great things. Okay, I don't want to drag it on forever. Yeah. Cool. So obviously all the links will be in the show notes, but other than just multiamory.com for the book and the podcast, where do you want to point people? What do you got going on? Yeah. Multiamory.com slash book will point you directly to the book. And then also, you know, Amazon links, Barnes and Noble, et cetera. We are multiamory underscore podcast on Instagram and threads and then also multi-amory on facebook and twitter now so yeah check us out everywhere x twitter whatever they want right. to call it <laughs> <laughs> amazing well i am just so grateful that y'all took the time to do this i know people are going to learn a lot and they're going to want to jump into the archives just like i'll be working my way through the archives can't wait to recommend your book to a lot of clients in the future and thank you so much thank, thank you so much thank you for having us Hell yeah, friend, you made it to the end. I so appreciate you tuning in. And if you enjoyed this episode, make my day by subscribing and leaving a five-star rating to help other people find this podcast. If you haven't already, make sure to grab my free resource, The Procrastination Prescription, and access the five steps I take myself through every time I'm stuck in what I call procrastinoidance hell. Go to bit.ly slash procrastination tool to access it now. That's bit.ly slash procrastination tool, all lowercase. You can follow my antics on TikTok at bad bitch therapist and on Instagram at the same, but with dots between the words. Thanks so much for being here. Now go out there and have a great fucking day. 